number four, Ephesians chapter number four, and uh, we are in verses 30 down through verse 32, and we are finally going to finish this passage that I said we'd finish in two parts, but ended up coming to part three, and so this time I can with a surety promise you that this is the last, uh, last message in this chapter. And uh, so we are going to be looking at living out who you are, and this is part three of what Paul has been describing in the Christian life of the remove and replace principle. And so let's read our text together here this morning, and uh, I pray that it would benefit us in our Christian life in a very great way today. Verse 30 of Ephesians chapter number 4, Paul writes and says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. When we think about living out who we are as Christians, that involves many practices, as we see in our text. We see there's the aspect of putting off the old sinful practices of our old nature. We are called to uh, not live in those anymore that is predisposed towards sin, but rather we are to put those off and replace them with godly practices, which we see here. You see, these practices, the godly practices, they flow from our new nature, our regenerated heart. We've been born again. We're no longer the same uh, person. We are a new creation in Christ. And this is the call of the Christian. This is the application for us, to live out who you really are in Christ. But that is not always easy for us, especially since major changes in our life, they're often resistant. Now, if you have regularly practiced something, it can be difficult to change that practice, can it? Now, I have a routine of getting up in the morning, and I always start my day with a cup of coffee. Anybody else with me on that? Most of you? All right. Now, I know who's really being sanctified and who still needs to grow a little bit. I'm just teasing. There's, there's some that don't like coffee, and it took me a while to come to like it. I didn't like it all, all my life, but uh, that's a regular practice for me. I get up, I have a cup of coffee. Now, if I was to just cold turkey, try to stop doing that, replace coffee with something else, or just stop altogether, that would be very, very hard for me. Most of you probably wouldn't want to be around me in the morning without my coffee. Just ask my wife. She'll let you know. But when it comes to living out these godly changes, they may be difficult at times because in our old nature, we had a habit of living a certain way. We had an apt nature that, that was predisposed towards sin. This is, this is deeper than just some habit like drinking coffee or not drinking coffee. This is about godly practices and ungodly practices in the Christian life. But here's the difference with the Christian. The Christian who has been born again has the power in them to live a changed life, whereas before that they did not have that. What is the power in them that enables them to live the Christian life? It is God the Holy Spirit. This is the principal uh, reality to our Christian life. We have the Holy Spirit of God. And as a Christian grows and yields their life to the Lord and they're walking with Him, they'll manifest these godly changes more and more in their process of being sanctified. 
So we've taken a close look at some of these practicalities of living out who we are. The principle is put off your old self, put on the new self. And we notice that, that Paul put forth in our last message to replace stealing with working and giving. Replace uh, corrupt speech with edifying and gracious speech. Before that, he pointed out uh, to replace falsehood with speaking truth and replace uncontrolled, unrighteous anger with a controlled and righteous form of anger, one that is godly. So as we conclude this passage of living out who we are, he presents to us a major truth as to why we must live out who we are, and he also closes it by giving us some further remove and replace practices. So number one this morning, I want to point out to you in in regards to living out who we are, we must do this. We must remember the person who dwells within us. We must remember and recognize that you are not alone in your Christian life living off on an island. You have someone with you at all times. And that someone, that person, is God the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to re- maybe just give a refresher to us this morning and, and by way of this truth. Notice letter A this morning that every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Every believer. There's not one who is a genuinely born-again believer who does not have the Holy Spirit. That's a contradiction of scriptural terms. And so Paul puts this point out. Uh, he inserts this in the midst of these remove and replace principles and practices in verse 30. And you notice what he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Right in this verse is the foundational principle to you living out the Christian life. It is the principle that you have the Holy Spirit in you. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you have no capability of living out the Christian life. You just don't. He is indwelling every born-again Christian. So how do we know this? Well, Scripture makes it plain as we see the descriptions of His ministry. I want to briefly touch on this just to give you this foundation of what Paul's going to say here. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, firstly, the Spirit of God works through the gospel message to convict sinners of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus said this of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Friend, the sinner, outside of the gospel message and the spirit working in that gospel message, he goes on his merry way without any really consideration for his sin and righteousness and judgment. He walks in darkness. And so the spirit of God, through the word of God, the gospel, brings to light and probes the heart and says, Hey, you are a sinner and you have offended the holy God. You are condemned in that sin. Not only that, but secondly, the Holy Spirit regenerates a sinner, giving them a new birth, making them into a new creation by means of the gospel message. Here's what Titus 3.5 tells us of that. Paul writes, of God who saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You understand that without regeneration, without the new birth, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Along with that, thirdly, the Holy Spirit, at the same moment of the new birth, understand, imparts faith to the sinner that he may believe on the only Savior. We studied this in Ephesians 2.8. How that faith itself is what? The gift of God. The gift of God. It is a grace. It is a gift. And so you understand that your believing on Christ is a gift. If you believe on Him, it is a gift. Because you in your natural sinful fallen condition, you have no power to do such a thing. Nor do you want to do such a thing, were it not for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit works to sanctify the saint, making them more into the image of Christ, convicting them of sin and growing them. Paul said this in Philippians 2.13, It is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So we see there's an ongoing role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Fifthly, and this ties into what Paul says, the Holy Spirit has sealed the believer, as we see in this text, to keep them secure to the day of redemption. And what is the day of redemption? It is that final day, the last day of all of human history in which Jesus returns, in which there is a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, and where the saints are glorified and brought into the eternal state. You understand that the Spirit of God keeps us all the way to that day. And on into eternity we go. Remember with me for a moment Ephesians 1, as Paul is rehearsing here what he said at the beginning of the book. If you look at verse number 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, Just to refresh your memory here, he says in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you understand that the believer is sealed. This this word sealed means to mark the seal as a means of identification. You see, the person of the Holy Spirit is the seal upon every believer, identifying them and securing them as God's own. And so his presence indwelling the believer, what, what does Paul say here in verse 14? He says he is the guarantee... The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, ponder that for a moment, Christian. What better guarantee could there be of your eternal life than God Himself in you? That's better than anything else. Better than anything. There is no better guarantee than that. And from this, we see the importance of the Holy Spirit's presence in us because here's the truth without the holy spirit within us we are no different than the world around us we are not the people of god without god in his people romans 8 9 tells us this very plainly you however talking to these christians are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him. Right there, you have it. Those who are not indwelt of the Spirit 
cannot claim to be genuine Christians because they have not been born again. They do not have God in them. And so understand the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. It gives us assurance that we belong to the Lord. But not only does His presence give us that assurance, it also enables us to live unto the Lord as we ought to live in this world. Because you can't do it without the Spirit of God. The presence of the Spirit of God in the believer, it is the crux, it is the hinge upon which the Christian life hangs. And even with the presence of the Spirit, you will testify with me, Christian, that there is a daily warfare between good and evil even in yourself. The Spirit and the flesh, the old nature that still inhabits our humanity. You see, without Him... There is no true changed life unto godliness. We are powerless without the Spirit to live the Christian life. But with His presence, we have everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. And because we have everything we need that pertains to life and godliness, we are called upon to live unto godliness by putting off the old and putting on the new in the practical way that Paul spells out for us. So with that principle, that foundation being laid, just a quick refresher on the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the believer, this brings us to what Paul is saying here. I want you to see letter B this morning that every believer can grieve the Holy Spirit. Every believer can grieve the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's an imperative. That's a command to the Christian. Have we ever paused, though, to consider the depth of what Paul is saying there? Paul says that you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we've got to bring our minds up to speed on. The Holy Spirit is not just some supernatural influence or power within us. He is that, but He's more than that. The Holy Spirit is a person. A person. He's not just some, some random inanimate force or, or, or tool in our life. He is a real person. Just as much as God the Son, Jesus, is a person. And God the Father is a person. He is a person who can be grieved. John MacArthur comments a little bit on this and gives some examples of of the personhood of the Holy Spirit and, and says that it is seen in the fact that He can be treated as a person. He can be tested, Acts 5, 9. He can be lied to, Acts 5, 3. He can be resisted, Acts 7, 51. He can be insulted, Hebrews 10, 29. He can be blasphemed, Matthew 12, 31 through 32. And here in our text, Paul says he can be Grieved. Grieved. What does it mean to grieve someone? Well, the word used here for grieve, the Greek definition, means to cause severe mental or emotional distress. It can be translated as vex, irritate, offend, or insult. You understand that the believer can grieve or irritate or offend, insult the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in them. Because he's a real person. He's a person we can offend. He's not just some inanimate power or tool. 
Now, we have a lot of things, tools and such that can help us and aid us. One of those is Siri. Who knows who Siri is? I know who Siri is. If you're Apple, you know. If you've got Android, you've got another person who does that. It's the same concept, but I sometimes like to mess with Siri, and I've tried tried my hardest to try to make her mad at me. I've tried to offend her. Asked her the dumbest questions in the world. I say, Siri, you're dumb. And she says, oh, that's not nice. But I can tell she doesn't mean it. She's a tool to help with things, right? I can say, hey, Siri, give me directions to uh, Chick-fil-A. And she'll do it. Hey, Siri, look up who, who won. Did you hear that? She's, she's talking to me right now. Which Chick-fil-A? <laughs> I should have known that. Pre- I don't have an answer for that. See, Is there something See that? I should have known that when I said, hey, Siri, in my sermon, she's going to pop up. Look, there she goes again. These things are a blessing and a curse at the same time. But Siri is just a tool. She, she can't be offended, right? I can't offend her. I can't assault, insult her. The Spirit is not that way. He, he's not just a tool implanted into our lives to help us get through this life and help us through some things. He is a person that we can genuinely offend and grieve by what we do, what we say, And watch this, even what we think. Because sin is not just outward, it's also inward. It always comes from the inward. And so since Paul tells us here, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, we must know how we may grieve the Spirit in order not to grieve Him. Where is the answer to this found? Well, in context, it's seen in all these practices of the old nature that Paul brings out. He says to put off these things. When the believer, having been given the new nature through conversion and the indwelling of the Spirit, when he continues to practice falsehood, when he continues to practice unrighteous anger or stealing or corrupt speech and all that Paul's about to mention in verse number 30, those things grieve the Holy Spirit of God. They grieve Him. We offend Him when we live out the old nature instead of the new nature nature especially in a willful manner now there's times when you ignorantly will sin and then it you hit it hits you later i messed up i need to seek forgiveness but then there's times when you willfully just continue on that is deeply insulting to the one who dwells in you now these are some specific ways we grieve him that paul brings out but grieving him is not limited to only these that are mentioned we must recognize that all forms of sinfulness both inwardly and outwardly they grieve the holy spirit We see examples of God being grieved with man and his sin. Remember the days of Noah for a moment. Genesis chapter number 6 and verse 5 and 6, you remember what that was like? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and notice this, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. You remember the rebellion of Israel in the Old Testament, Isaiah 63.10. They rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Remember the religious leaders of Jesus' day. How hard-hearted they were. And Mark 3.5 tells us this. Jesus, He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. What you find in these texts is all three persons of the Trinity grieved 
in some way or another at sin. You see, the Lord is grieved at the sinfulness of sinners in general. I mean, that that applies both to the unbeliever and the believer. The Lord is angry with the wicked every day. He's grieved by sin. But understand, there's a unique application, especially for us, because we have God dwelling in us and we know better. There's a difference. Why does our sin grieve the Holy Spirit so much? Let me point out two reasons. Firstly is the first part of his name. He's the Holy Spirit. We just sung that beautiful song. One song, one of my favorite of all hymns is Holy, Holy, Holy. Why? Because God is a thrice holy God. The Father is holy. The Son, our Lord Jesus, he is holy. The Spirit, he is holy. And understand that As holy, He is perfectly righteous and set apart from all that is unrighteous. Our God is a thrice holy God whose nature is grossly offended by sin. But more to the text here also. Sin grieves Him because the Holy Spirit has indwelled us to seal us until the day of redemption. You know what that means? He has done His work in us to deliver us from sin. So Claire Ferguson rightly comments on this and says, Why should our sin grieve the Spirit? Because we have been sealed with Him with a view of our final salvation. To live as though that were a matter of indifference to us is to wound Him deeply. Understand, when we do the very thing that He's saving us from, it grieves Him. It grieves Him. It's like, you know, when you instruct your children to do something or not to do something, you know is, number one, sinful, but also going to hurt them. And then they go do it anyway. It grieves a parent. It grieves them. We must remember that there is, there is nothing that we ever do, say, or think that is ever kept hidden or separate from the Spirit of God. This is something we as Christians forget about. We go on our way through our life and we think, okay, we're, we've gone out, we're away from the church, we're away from other people, and maybe I'll just kind of do some of the things that I like to do that are carnal and fleshly and of the old nature, but yet all along we forget somebody's still with you if you're a Christian. Wherever you go, the Spirit's right there with you. Whatever you're doing, the Spirit is right there with you. You can't pull one over on God. The Spirit is in us everywhere. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians concerning their sexual sin, in which certainly sexual sin is always secret sin, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He calls on them and says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's this application and principle throughout the whole New Testament is that the Spirit of God is in His people. And we ought to live in a way that pleases Him, not to grieve Him. What happens when we do grieve the Spirit? Now, we've all grieved someone at some point over something, right? Husbands and wives, we're good at grieving our spouse, aren't we? Parents sometimes are grieved by their children. Workers can grieve their boss and so forth. And when we have grieved someone, does it at some point or in some way become evident that you have grieved them? 
Most often it does. Usually when I have grieved Bethany, it doesn't take long for me to figure it out. There's a particular look that says it all. Anybody else understand that? Manner of expression that reveals, we're not on good terms right now. You've grieved me about something. Do you think the Spirit of God makes known when he is grieved? Absolutely he does. It's called conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit probes into our heart, letting us know that something's not right, even bringing to our very thoughts the very thing that we did that is not right, that we need to repent of and confess. I think one of the great examples of this is King David. We're all aware of this man who was a man after God's own heart, but yet he also, he also had many failures, great sins. But listen to his words in Psalm 32 and verse 1 through 4. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up and by the, dried up as by the heat of summer. What is David describing here? He's describing a moment or season in his life in which he kept silence. He did not repent. He did not confess. That's why he says, blessed, happy, joyful is the one whose sin is forgiven. Because when we walk on our merry way and we keep silent and we don't do anything about returning from our sin, he says, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. Now, I'm a Christian and I'm not perfect and I know what that feels like. When you've not repented of sin that you know you need to repent of in your life. We've all probably had that at some point or another. When we have grieved the Spirit, He will make us aware of that. So we as Christians are called to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How can we do that? We need to remember who we are and who it is that dwells within us. Charles Hodge comments on this and says, Reverence, therefore, for the Holy Spirit who dwells in others and for the same Spirit as dwelling in ourselves should prevent our ever giving utterance to a corrupting thought. So here's a question we can ask ourselves as we live our Christian life. We must ask ourselves, will what I, is, is what I'm about to say or do, will that grieve the Holy Spirit or not? That ends point one. Point two, you ready? Replace unholy vices with holy virtues. This is where we see the last two verses here. Replace unholy vices with holy virtues. Notice what Paul describes here in Ephesians 4, in verse number 31. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Here's what we have to do. And understand, letter A, the old nature produces many unholy vices. And that's what these are. These are unholy, natural, sinful vices. What exactly, are the, what, what exactly are these vices that easily grip us? They are these inner impulses of our flesh that lead into sin, both towards God and towards other people. These are very much relational in what we're looking at to other people. Now, look closely with me for a moment at what Paul says first, because this really, these are all tied together. But, but, but this first one, 
is, is, is key to understand. It's bitterness. He says, put away all bitterness. Now, what exactly is bitterness? Bitterness comes from the word bitter, and it refers to something pointed and sharp or keen, something pugnant to the sense of taste and smell. That's in a, more of a literal sense. We've all probably tasted something that was bitter. And, and bitter things, they're not really that good, are they? Now, some bitter things might be okay, good for you, vinegar, fermented foods, whatever. But then there's other bitter things that are extremely dangerous. If you take a drink of gasoline or radiator fluid, you're going to know. It's bitter. It's gross. Never done it. Don't, don't try it. But it's dangerous also. Dangerous to you. Now, understand, Paul's not talking about literal foods and drinks that may be bitter. He's talking about a state of bitterness in the heart of a person. The word bitterness here. Give you a couple definitions and descriptions. It refers to the state of being bitter in an effective sense. It can be translated as animosity, anger, or harshness. Another Greek lexicon defines it this way a state of sharp, intense resentment or hate. John MacArthur, in his commentary, describes it as a smoldering resentment, a brooding, grudge-filled attitude. It is the spirit of irritability that keeps a person in perpetual animosity, making him sour and venomous. I think that's pretty plain. Bitterness is a state of being resentful, upset, even vengeful, towards someone or something. Now, here's the reality. Sometimes people get bitter at different things. Sometimes people get bitter at God's providences. Questioning why God would allow or ordain certain things that they do not like or they do not understand. A lot of people shake their fist at God in bitterness. Because something is happening in their life that they can't let go of. They can't understand. They've refused to trust Him with it. And then other times, people become bitter at other people for something they have said or did that hurt them. Regardless of whatever prompts the bitterness, bitterness is always a response in the mind and heart of a person. Bitterness comes naturally to our fallen flesh, for we easily are angered and resentful at things that we don't like or things that hurt us. And this is why Paul calls it out specifically for the Christian to put it away, because it's not of the new nature. Bitterness is of the old nature. And here's what you must see with this, that it is dangerous. Bitterness is dangerous both to the person harboring bitterness and to other believers around them. Now, Scripture warns of this bitterness. In Hebrews 12, 15, he says to this church, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it, and by it many become defiled. You notice that it starts as a root of bitterness, and he warns about the fact that many may be defiled by that root of bitterness. So he said, why is that such an important caution? Because bitterness, understand, it is also contagious. A bitter and resentful person is like a contagious poison spreading his resentment to others, especially if you're voicing it to other people. If you're bitter at someone and you start voicing it to other people, you're going to plant that seed of bitterness in their mind. You're going to affect how they might view that particular person. 
the Hebrew author here, referencing back to the warning to those in Israel not to turn away from God in Deuteronomy 29. The point here is that many of the Israelites, they were bitter at God and Moses. When they didn't see how he was going to provide for them, when they thought they were brought out there to die, and they said, let's just go back to Egypt. Forget this God who delivered us. They were bitter in their heart at what was happening. Now, here's the reality. Bitterness always turns a person away from God. Not only does bitterness turn one away from God, it slowly destroys a person within. Augustine has said this, and it's been quoted in various ways throughout history, but he is known to have said resentment or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I think that's probably one of the best descriptions you could have. Resentment or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die, the one you're bitter at. Bitterness will destroy you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. You understand that I have known people who were bitter their entire life and it took a major health toll on them. Because they wouldn't let go. They were filled with hate towards someone else. They simply held on to it. See, bitterness corrupts the thoughts and intentions of a person. And so therefore we are called to put it aside. Charles Hodge said this, The command therefore to lay aside all bitterness is a command to lay aside everything which corrodes our minds and wounds the feelings of others. Friend, if you're bitter at someone or something, you're only hurting yourself. You're not hurting anybody else. You're only hurting yourself. Notice what, what else is connected to bitterness that we've got to throw away. We've got to put off. From bitterness is connected all these other vices of our flesh. They're interwoven and connected together. Secondly, Paul says to put away wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is, is a state of intense displeasure. It has in mind an outburst of rage and indignation. You ever seen someone have an outburst of rage and anger? It just flowed out of them? It comes naturally to the human life. How do I know that? Because I've got a one-year-old, nearly one-year-old, who's already manifesting that little trait. It's cute now, but it won't be cute later. He doesn't get his way, plops himself on the ground, throws his arm down and screams. That's an outburst of rage, of wrath. Now, that's just a baby, but it's a whole lot worse when you become adults. We've seen people with rage and wrath in, in, in adult context. Anybody remember the coach Bobby Knight? That moment he got mad and threw the chair across the court? That would be an example of rage, wrath. And we who are adult Christians are to put this away and be on guard against such behaviors like that influencing us. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says this, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. This response of wrath is sinful and dangerous and must be put away. Thirdly, notice he says anger. Put away anger. Now this is already somewhat restating what Paul said earlier. It is the unrighteous anger that's rooted in bitterness. Fourthly, we see there is clamor. What is clamor? We don't use that word a whole lot, do we? But it's in most translations. The word refers to a loud cry or call. 
it specifically speaks of people shouting back and forth in a quarrel, in a fight. Surely none of us have ever been in a speech fight with anyone. We're all human. You ain't going to slip it by me either. I know who we are. This is part of our human nature. We're to grow to put that very action to death, to not do it. Legacy Standard Bible translates it clearly as shouting. Does shouting have any connection to anger, wrath, and bitterness? Absolutely. Now, I've lived in close proximity in apartments to other people. And I don't know how some people live with certain people. Literally. There was one couple that just screamed at each other all the time, like, what are y'all doing? Outfits of rage and anger, yelling, shouting. That's what this clamor is. Understand that it's anger that fuels that. Fifthly, he says to put off slander. What is slander? Slander is speech that denigrates or defames. And Christian, this is one that is more prevalent in churches than you realize. We may not be shouting at each other, but how many slander each other privately with their words towards other people? It's easy to be disgruntled or bitter at another believer and speak negatively about them while they aren't present. That's slander. That is slander. And understand this, that slander is detrimental to our walk with God. Listen to what David said. Psalm 15, 1-3. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Isn't that where we want to be? We want to be close to the Lord and fellowship with Him. But here's what he says. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, and watch this, and does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Slander is something God abhors. It's detrimental to our walk with God, but I want you to understand this in context of the local church. It is detrimental to the local church. It is, divi- it is divisive. It sows division and discord. And so we must put off slander. Lastly, Paul connects malice to what must be put off. Malice here refers to a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition. Malice is essentially the foundation of wickedness and depravity. It characterizes the old nature because it was fundamentally evil and mean-spirited by nature. Now, what do you notice about all of these unholy vices that grip the natural person? They involve primarily conflict between people. People. These are practices that disrupt and destroy relationships. Whether it is your marriage whether it is the local church, whether it's your relationship with your co-workers, other family, bitterness will destroy those. Anger and wrath will destroy those relationships. Slander will disrupt them. Malice is the root of that evil that will disrupt those things. And if the church is to be unified in love and, the pur- and, and, and purpose as the people of God, we have to put away these unholy vices. Because this will kill unity. It kills it. It's a cancer that kills unity. All of these things, they're detrimental to the people of God. And they grieve the Holy Spirit. 
But that brings me to what we replace them with. The new nature, letter B, reflects the holy virtues of Christ. What must we replace these unholy vices with? In verse 32, notice what Paul says here. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And look, look at these and, and you see the, these are graces the Lord has shown directly to us. Has God been kind to you, Christian? Has He been tenderhearted to you? Has He forgiven you? Yes, He has. We don't, we don't have the amount of words to describe how much thanks and praise we have to give Him for this. And with these graces the Lord has shown us, we in turn are to show them to others, especially those in the church. We notice, firstly, that we are to be kind. What is it to be kind? It is to be loving and benevolent. This is what the Lord has manifested to us. Titus 3, 4 and 5 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. God, out of His kindness and grace, has brought salvation to us. And God's kindness, understand this, it was not dependent on our kindness towards Him. He in His grace was kind to us and saved us from our sins. He loved us when we were His enemies. And having been the recipients of such kindness, we are to manifest that kindness one to another. This is a relational reality among the people of God. Now, we're to be kind to the unregenerate world around us too. But the context specifically focuses on the saints. But notice, what, remember what, what Jesus said in Luke 6.35. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Kindness must permeate the body of Christ because kindness is a virtue that reflects Christ. Notice kindness is interwoven with being tender-hearted. Tender-hearted is to have tender feelings towards someone. This is compassion. And compassion is the root to kindness extended towards others. Christians must be compassionate people to others. We must be. And understand that the compassion of a Christian, it does not depend on receiving compassion from someone else. You're to be compassionate to others regardless of whether you get it back or not. If every Christian refuse to show compassion to someone else until they first receive compassion from someone else, nobody would ever receive compassion from someone else. We extend it because that's who Christ is. We're living out who we are in Christ. We show compassion not expecting to receive anything because God in His grace showed compassion to us. We didn't deserve anything at all. Parallel passage, Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Paul says to them, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That summarizes all that Paul's saying here, which brings us to the last application that Paul says here. He closes it, and what does he say in verse 32? He says, we're to be forgiving one another as God in Christ 
forgave you. What does it mean to forgive someone? It means you're showing yourself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing. It is to let go of that wrongdoing that someone has committed against you. You're not continuing to hold it to their account. Now, how much has God forgiven you of, Christian? Can you even begin to measure how much he's forgiven you? I can't. I can't. Can't fathom it. Has God withheld any forgiveness towards you in Christ? None whatsoever. How much should we forgive others who wrong us? Should we withhold forgiveness from them? Peter once asked this question. Matthew 6, or excuse me, 18. Peter came up and said to them, I think I might have had the wrong verse reference. Matthew 18, I think it's verse 21, 22. Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seven, 77 times, or some translations, 70 times seven. You see, within Judaism, three times was sufficient to show a forgiving spirit based on some other passages, but Peter, so he's, he says seven, thinks he's showing a lot of generosity. Man, I've gone over and above here. But true disciples of Jesus are to forgive without keeping count. And so when Jesus mentions 70 times 7 or 77, that's a number that goes beyond measure. It's, it's meant to convey that message. You don't keep count. You keep forgiving. We forgive those who wrong us. But I will also note this, that forgiveness does not eliminate what naturally is reaped by the one doing the wrong. Things may be committed against you that may change the human relationship and connection you once had. Now, I may have a friend who stole from me repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. I'm going to forgive him every single time. But I'm not giving him my wallet. I'm not giving him my bank information. There's a measure of wisdom here in relationship status. Forgiveness does not mean that everything perfectly goes back to perfect as it was prior to the offense. But it does mean this, that the one doing the forgiving has truly let go of that defense and genuinely forgiven them. Has genuinely forgiven them. You see, the Lord, He restores perfect fellowship once again with His people when we seek His forgiveness. In human relationships, I think there is a little bit of a different dynamic when it comes to offenses. Some offenses can cause a continued negative effect that interrupts the relationship forever. But that doesn't change your forgiveness of what they've done. That changes your heart. See, the foundational point to this is that no matter what the offense is or how often, the Christian in their heart must forgive the offender. And if you refuse to forgive, guess what you do? You open up the door to bitterness, which in turn will only destroy you. Refusal to forgive opens the door to bitterness. And not only will it open the door to bitterness, it will also hinder your own fellowship with the Lord. Friends, we look at these things, they are very plain and very pointed towards us. And I'm glad they are. I'm glad God doesn't just give us sugar-coated stuff. He really gets to the core meat of our issues, doesn't he? After this, you all are just going to come in here steel-toed boots every service, aren't you? Well, let me let you in a secret. The Lord knows how to break through those, too. 
living out who you are is putting on and practicing the new nature in Christ. And Paul has laid this out for us. We must not grieve the Holy Spirit by living out practices of the old nature, but rather we must put off these unholy vices that we see here and put on these holy virtues of Christ. I want to challenge you to apply these to your own heart today, church. If these struck your heart, apply them. Turn to the Lord. You may say, oh, it's a hard sermon. I'm just going to tell you, I get hit with it before you get hit with it. These things convict me. They ought to convict you. So how has Scripture spoken to your heart today? In what ways do you need to apply and live out who you are in Christ? Let's stand to our feet as we pray and prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you and thank you for this day. We thank you for this text that you've given us, the message that is before us. Lord, we're thankful that you're a God who cuts deep to the core of who we really are, showing us what we really need. And Father, what we've seen in this text, throughout this whole passage of living out who we're supposed to be, we must put off the old nature and put on the new. We're called to do so. You're worthy of it. We have the Holy Spirit to help us and enable us to do that. It's my prayer, Father, that you administer this this word to the hearts of your people in accordance with your will. We praise you and thank you, Father, for changing us, never failing us, bringing us on all, all, all the way to eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.